Welcome to episode 10 of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Richard Henry, who has retired from a long and productive career in the chromatography business and currently consults for a variety of organizations. Dr. Henry is an expert in column technology for liquid chromatography, and I'm thrilled that he's able to join me for a conversation today. So far with the podcast, we've had four episodes focused on separation science. Two of these have been with academic researchers and two with uh, researchers from industry. With this episode, I'm happy that we're able to broaden the conversation a bit by talking with someone who has contributed to all phases of the development of modern liquid chromatography, much of which occurred before I personally got involved in, in the game. So Dick, thank you for joining me today for episode 10 of the Analytic Analytically Speaking podcast, which is the fifth episode focused on separation science in this new podcast adventure. Thanks, Dwight. Happy to be here. Great. So before we uh, get into talking about your science, I want to take just a little bit of time to talk about your background uh, to give our listeners a kind of a sense for your experiences and perspectives. So you did your bachelor's studies in chemistry at Juniata College in Pennsylvania, finishing there in 1963, and then moved on to Penn State University, where you worked with Professor Joe Jordan and received a doctoral degree in analytical chemistry, finishing the PhD in 1966. After working as a postdoc with Professor Buck Rogers at Purdue, you joined DuPont at the experimental station in Wilmington, Delaware in, in uh, 1967. From there, you moved to a company called Spectra Physics in San Francisco in 1973, where you worked in a variety of roles, including applications manager, product manager, research manager. And then in 1985, you founded your own company, which was known as Keystone Scientific at the time, which was focused on developing and producing columns for liquid chromatography. Keystone was eventually sold to Thermal Corporation in 2002 at which you uh, point, I believe you retired from the day-to-day uh, operation of the business and I've consulted for several different companies since that time. I think it was right around that time that I got to know you actually, since we overlapped in our time uh, working for zircrome separations in that era. Now, before we get into a more of a conversation, I just wanna say how much of a pleasure it is for me to, to have you as a guest here on the podcast, because we've had so many conversations over the years and you. You've been really supportive of me, especially when I was trying to find my way as a graduate student and a, and a young academic researcher. And uh, it has really been interactions with people like you that have made the chromatography community feel welcoming to me. And I've, uh, those interactions have really enriched my pro- professional life. So thanks uh, a lot, Dick, for all that support along the way. And if I know anything from our previous talks, it is that we won't have any final uh, any trouble finding things to talk about today. So uh, before we move on, did I get all the details about the background right, Dick? Yeah, that's, that sounds good. Okay, I met, great. I met you uh, when I was inter- interacting with uh, your boss, Peter Carr, mm-hmm. uh, your professor who uh, counseled you in, toward the PhD degree, and uh, I met you at Zircrome when you were an applications chemist. And you could see right away that you guys were <clears throat> knowledgeable and as a company and you in particular had a lot more potential than you could ever achieve 
staying at uh, at the bench with Zerkrum. So I think we we even brought up at that point that uh, you really needed a PhD to really shine brightly in liquid chromatography. And I'm very glad that you did that. And that's one of the reasons that I've always felt supportive of you uh, in in that objective. And look at what you've become. And liquid chromatography has been great to me. And look how good it's been to you as well. Yeah, indeed, for sure. All right, so so let's get into uh, a little bit of a conversation here. So during the uh, this this is what I've been saying uh, during all these recent episodes. I during the pandemic, uh, which is maybe mostly behind us now, I I listened to many science podcasts, and I've always been intrigued to hear about sort of early career defining events of different people. And so uh, the first question I have for you is what what events do you point to that sort of generally increased your interest in science? Well, I came out of high school like a lot of students uh, with no intent to be a chemist. Uh, chemistry was, was always a boring subject and uh, I was decent in science and math and I thought I might want to get into it, but I never thought of chemistry as a career. I wanted to be a forest ranger. And that's what I started out to be in liquid chromatography, in, uh, in Juniata College in, in bio, uh, biology, really. It was a biology and biochemistry career in forest ranging. And a lot of my friends uh, from that part of the central Pennsylvania ended up there and, and had nice careers there. So they, it could have been good. But my first course at Juniata College, freshman year, first semester, was chemistry. That's the way Juniata did their science program. And uh, Don Rockwell, who was an excellent speaker and motivator, had written a book, Chemistry of the Covalent Bond. Hmm. And that was, a, as a freshman chemist, freshman chemistry major, or freshman major in forestry, I was really challenged by that, but I was intrigued by it. To the point where at the end of the first year, first semester, actually first half year, I had decided that chemistry was for me and biology wasn't. While I was taking chemistry of the covalent bond, I was also dissecting frogs and turtles in biology. <laughs> and man, oh man, I, I, had, I wanted no part of that. But chemistry intrigued me and... Uh, I also met a professor there who was instrumental in getting me interested in analytical chemistry named David Hercules. Dave Hercules was a graduate of Juniata who went to MIT, got his PhD, came back, and his first teaching job was at Penn State. And he was a very enthusiastic analytical chemist. And he was my advisor and my research advisor there while I was at Juniata. Now, he was in spectroscopy, so that at that point, uh, I wasn't interested, wasn't even much aware of chromatography. But uh, that, that, those two people, Don Rockwell, chemistry of the covalent bond, no periodic table stuff, just a lot about what chemistry was part of in every facet of life, and uh, mostly about the carbon molecule. So that got me going, and then I realized. Uh, in summer research at DuPont uh, down in Wilmington, Delaware, I was an undergraduate 
summer student two years there and one year at Juniata. I got a lot out of going to, um, to DuPont as an analytical assistant, uh, as a technician in uh, their center research group, working in the basement always. Uh, technicians usually find themselves in the basement doing samples and that's where I was, but I met a lot of people there at DuPont, the experimental station, a lot of PhDs, didn't meet Jack at that point, but I was, I was working on thermal analysis and instron measurements, tensile strength measurements down in the basement of Central Research. But I enjoyed it. And uh, I still wanted to stick it out as a chemistry major, but I knew that I had to get more than a, a bachelor's degree in order to accomplish what I had hoped to accomplish uh, in my career. So I went to Penn State uh, worked for Joe Jordan. Uh, again, no chromatography there. Uh, Penn State was making the transition from wet chemistry to instrumental analysis, and that's what Joe was doing. And he, he was building calorimetries, calorimeters that could do analytical titrations uh, using heat as an indicator. And uh, my uh, lab partner at Penn State was Pete Carr all things and he was doing electrochemistry so I was doing calorimetry he was doing electrochemistry Joe Jordan was a Kolthoff student uh, he had been at the University of Minnesota as a postdoc and uh, maybe I'm not sure whether he met Kolthoff in Europe or not Joe is from Europe uh, had his PhD from Europe at I believe Hebrew University but uh, he was a big uh, Kolthoff enthusiast and uh, so I heard, heard, had that drummed into me for several years at Penn State. Coltop, of course, is quite well known. He was, he was the, the origin, or maybe not the very first to say it, but he, he used this slogan that the, the experiment part of it was extremely important. I mean, theory is part of it and just gets you going. But it's the experimentation that determines whether your your results are going to be a success or not. And that's how you prove your results. So <clears throat> that's the way Joe worked. And um, I still wasn't in separation. And then I, I realized I couldn't get a job in calorimetry at the end of this uh, period of being at Penn State for three years, and I wanted to get some experience in chromatography. And uh, Joe knew uh, Buck Rogers, and Buck called me out, and we talked, and he offered me a postdoc. And I had a position where I did research in his lab, but I also taught uh, for a Dr. DeVries out there who was a wet chemist at Penn State, or at uh, Purdue, doing uh, analytical wet chemistry. So Purdue did it all. Purdue did the wet chemistry, but they had already made the transition to instrumental analysis. They were big in it. Penn State was not big in it. So I got so much out of Purdue that uh, that's really where my career in separation started. Brian Bendingmeyer was there. Ron Majors was there. Uh, Buck was there. A number of other students. Uh, Fred McLafferty was there. Fred Rainier was there. Uh, my goodness, you know, 
even Andy Alpert was there. Huh. Uh, Andy Alpert started his company, Poly LC, and doing healing right uh -huh. after grad school. So everything was there, and uh, that was a happening place, and I got real excited. Huh. And in fact, when I went to Purdue, I was thinking that I'd end up teaching, but uh, I never did. Buck was really well connected in industry, knew the uh, DuPont people very well. He himself was a consultant for DuPont, and uh, he aimed me in that direction said that's where I should go. And teaching then was very, very low paying, and industry was decent. So I went for the money, went for DuPont, and got down there at the experimental station and ended up getting in, meeting Jack Kirkland. And he was, of course, very high uh, motivator in probably the biggest reason that I'm in HPLC. Uh, he said, hey, we don't have to, we can make our own particles and uh, we should make the whole column uh, from the ground up. We don't have to use, we don't have to process silica. We can build our own silica. And that was it. It's a pretty exciting time for me. And uh, I ended up joining the analytical group in DuPont after a year in textile fibers. Okay, great. Uh, cover that, that covers a lot of a lot of territory. Um, so one of the uh, one of the pieces that I was from your background that I was uh, wanted to sort of draw out a little bit more is sort of you have this really great perspective on essentially the entire evolution of what we know as modern column technology. So uh, can you just Kind of, I mean, you started to talk about it a little bit, but just uh, sort of reflect on that a little bit more, sort of thinking about your first experiences at DuPont all the way through what we see in the market today. And as we were uh, just chatting a little bit in preparation for the discussion here, I think you told me that the first time you, you walked into the what became your lab at DuPont, there was a big instrument in a box full of samples, but but no columns. <laughs> yeah, and so true. you had to make your own. So, so can you uh, sort of reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I spent a year at DuPont working in the textile fibers department and had a couple of pretty good uh, project results as an analytical chemist. So they they offered me a position, a promotion early on in my career after only a year because I had done really good on a couple of projects for them. But in textile fibers, you had to spend, start spending time at the plant. So they offered me a promotion and they were all excited about it and said, but you have to go transfer and take your family to Smyrna, Delaware and work in the nylon technical plant for a couple of years to morph into a fibers chemist. And uh, they were excited about it and I wasn't. And <laughs> basically I had already decided that I wanted to stick with analytical chemistry and I wanted to stick with science because that direction took you away from science. I wanted to stick with it, and uh, so I ended up doing that, sticking with it, and uh, started working with uh, with Kirkland and uh, gang at the Instrument Products Division down there in Glasgow, Delaware. A uh, very exciting time, and Jack's first product was Zypax, which was the first, really the first spherical particle of any consequence for doing commercially uh, being sold for doing liquid chromatography. So the first commercial sphere was a core type particle. 
which is interesting. Uh, it wasn't the right core size particle, uh, but it was the best they could make at the time, and we took it as far as we could, but we had to give up because we really couldn't get anything retained on it. Uh, it was interesting, and it had high plates for the particle size, high plate counts, but it, uh, and you could do some work with it, but it wasn't a mainstream particle. So we abandoned it, and we turned Zypax into Zorbax. So instead of putting a coat of colloidal silica on a solid sphere, we just made a porous particle out of colloidal silica. And that was Zorbax. And that was also while I was there. That was around 1970, late 60s, early 70s. And, we, and of course, Zorbax was a very big success. And that was one of the first, if not the first, spherical silica. Up until that point, we were working with granular silica or irregular silica. And you could see the problems with that. And, you know, the columns were hard to pack and they settled, they voided. Uh, the spheres packed much easier and they didn't void as much. And, uh, of course, the performance was quite good. The first particles were 10 micron. And then we gradually worked down uh, to uh, 5 micron. And, and eventually to three micron, but over a period of quite a few years to get there. Uh, I, when I left DuPont, uh, they, were, they were pretty much getting out of the instruments business. They decided that selling analytical instruments wasn't their game. And after, so about, after about seven years at DuPont, say about 1973, I decided to join uh, Spectrophysics because they had just acquired Chromatronics and a group of nice people there, Steve Bacallier, Hawk Magnuson, some really good scientists in Berkeley, and asked me to come out and become Applications Manager. And that's where my first job at Spectrophysics was. So I came out and was an Applications Manager at that point. We had the ability to get spherical particles, and we ended up being, uh, being able to buy uh, spherosorb. And I was involved in, in getting that particle out into the mainstream of ap applications uh, with 10 micron and then eventually 5 micron particles. And then uh, we also got involved with uh, hypersil, which came along at about the same time or a little bit after spherosorb. And that was another good spherical particle. So the spheres were starting to show their uh, metal and uh, become, they were quickly accepted over, over the granular particles. And they started liquid chromatography up uh, to where it is today. The um, three micron particles were a little tougher to prepare and a little tougher to uh, operate uh, at high enough pressure. And we really weren't packing very good columns. So even the spherical column had a tendency to void a little bit. And the more plates you have, the more serious uh, problem avoid it. The void is very serious for a highly efficient column. You can be very forgiving if you have a 10 micron column, you probably don't even notice it. With a five, you notice it a little bit. With a three, you notice it a lot. So we, we had to learn how to make those columns. And uh, that that's one of the things that made me decide eventually I needed to 
start a business trying to make good columns. There was plenty of work to do, challenges were there. I thought I could make some unique contributions. And I had always wanted to run my own business. I learned a lot at DuPont, but uh, you would never, never learn how to run your own business at DuPont, and you'd never get that opportunity. With spectrophysics, they were a little smaller, and I learned a little bit more. I saw a little bit more of the inner workings of, of running a small business, got more confidence. And uh, Ken Rainin once at, out there, I had I had some did some work for Ken Rain and Rainin Instruments, uh, and he took me as un, under his wing for a while when I was on the West Coast, and he asked me if I would start a company with him. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity that is, because he was a gold mine in starting companies. He had all the money in the world, and he had done it so many times, he was almost a guarantee of success. But he was already in liquid chromatography hmm. with rain and instruments. And he said, I'll fund you in any business you want to start, but it can't be liquid chromatography. <laughs> so there I am faced with another decision. I said, well, heck of an, heck of an offer, Ken, but I think I have to stick with liquid chromatography. It's, it's something I love. I think it can be a lot more than it is now, and I'd like to be part of it, I'd like to keep, keep with it. So I've stayed with it my whole year. And then I came back to Penn State, and I'll tell you the reason one of the reasons I was came back all the way home is, first of all, I was homesick. And I'm kind of a country sort of boy, and I'm even a little bit un uncomfortable right here in Pittsburgh, where I'm living now. I, I like to be out in the, with nature a little bit more than, than I can in a big city. In the Bay Area, it, it, you know, it just wasn't possible. But... Back here in Pennsylvania, I also had a uh, support group because my professor was still here from Penn State. And uh, he said, I said, do you have a position at Penn State? Non I'm not looking for a tenured position. I'm, I'm, I don't want to try to change, morph myself that far into the academic world. But I would like to have something that will pay the bills and give me in health insurance while I'm starting a company. I was very honest with him. And he said, yeah, we really could use some help in analytical chemistry, undergraduate. And uh, he set me up with uh, the position director of analytical laboratories where I ran the undergraduate senior analytical chemistry lab and also taught instrumental analysis. And that was a great job. And <laughs> I could morph back and forth to, to Keystone Scientific because I actually had a laboratory that I started right there in Penn State so I could walk to my lab huh. and do some research and try to develop some products while I could still fulfill my job at Penn State. Mm -hmm. And that, that was great for me for probably five years because I mm -hmm. couldn't take any money. Right. So I wasn't, I took no salary out of Penn, out of uh, Keystone Scientific for the first five years. Huh. And the second five years at Keystone Scientific, I paid myself a fair wage. Huh. And on the last five years, I paid myself an exorbitant 
come out. <laughs> I was, uh, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but I paid myself uh, a healthy wage the last five years. And then finally, when Thermo wanted to buy the company, I, I basically was able to put my nest egg away and retire. Mm-hmm. And that it's a, it's a nice story. And, uh, and that it's all in centers around column technology. Yeah. Right. I've made a lot of good choices and I've screwed up a lot too. Hmm. Great. Thanks for that. Uh, that uh, summary of things. So the, the other thing I want to ask you at this point is, um, so one of the things you commented on about Keystone sort of in our back and forth is that, um, the company was kind of unique at the time because you had a sophisticated machine shop as part of the operation and you were, you know, designing new fittings and calm components and things like that. So I'm just curious, you know, what motivated you to do that because it's, <laughs> because it's different, right? And, and what are some of maybe one or two highlights of, uh, what were some of the, the sort of advances you were able to make as, uh, uh because you chose to do that? Well, uh, first of all, if you're going to start a company, you need something unique about yourself, something unusual that you have to offer that sets you aside uh, apart from the competition. And I can tell you from all the work I tried to do in liquid chromatography up to that point, I always had trouble with machine parts and metal parts and fabricating what I needed to make a good column. I was always going outside for that machine work. And anytime you do that, uh, you always turn out to be disappointed. I was always disappointed with what I got, how fast I got it, and how much I had to pay for it. Hmm. And I just decided I wasn't going to do that. And then another thing uh, is that when I started Keystone Scientific, there ha- I happened to know a machinist in the area who had worked for scientific systems and I hired him as one of my partners at Keystone Scientific and he was uh, really instrumental in helping me do unique things at Keystone Scientific. Uh, We did not make our own bonded phases. We purchased bonded phases from other companies, Spherosorb, Hypersil, Zerchrome. So we didn't have any of our own chemistry. So I was a chemist running a machine shop when I first started. But I put together a heck of a nice machine shop. And then eventually I built a building to house that machine shop. And I put them in the basement in a big machine shop where raw tubing and raw pieces of steel would come in and parts would come out that were unique to me. And they work well. And these guys that I had working for me knew chromatography as well. They knew what they were making these parts for. And I was able to be very successful in uh, being an OEM customer. So I could sell my columns to other companies. Uh, and I could private label them. So uh, I not only could sell to the customer, I could sell to other instrument companies. And they didn't have to worry about the hardware or anything of that nature. So uh, it, it was just a good strategy for me. And I think it was 
disappointing when Thermo bought my company because I thought they would want that technology. I thought that was one of the things they were build, buying me for. And the, nothing could be further from the truth. One of the first things they did on day one was say, okay, now we're going to get rid of the machine shop and we're going to source all of our parts. And I told them they were crazy. Hmm. And they actually called me out to California and said, you know, why don't you tell us why we bought you? And I said, because they knew I was unhappy with, with the progress in the first year. And I said, well, if you don't know why you bought me, why did you buy me? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's not a question I expected to hear. Why did you buy, why, why did you buy me? You want me to tell you why you bought me? I, I mean, I was flabbergasted. Uh, and I ended up being fired right away from spectrophysics because I was a headbutter. Hmm. And I resisted selling the machine shop, but uh, they sold it anyway and fired me and put me on garden leave. Hmm. The first time I'd ever heard that word. <laughs> My boss was a, was a Brit. And he said, uh, when, we, when we want to fire somebody, if they're an executive, we put them on garden leave. That means you go out in the garden and work and we'll call you if we need you. Hmm. So that's what they did for me. And they got rid of the shop. And all they really wanted was the product line and the production. And, and honestly, they weren't wrong because they ran it. I ran it for 16 years and they ran it for 20 years hmm. and they grew it bigger than I ever had it mm-hmm. doing it their way. So there is no right way to run a business. There's just a different way. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want anything to do with the machine shop and they hmm. didn't even want anything to do with the chemistry because we were starting to get into chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, all they really wanted was the cash the product line flowing through and uh, it was it was good for them and the people who worked there i had people working at keystone scientific who worked for 30 years over 30 years for keystone hmm. half of it for me half of it for thermo sure and eventually longer for thermo than they did for us hmm. which is a nice story and i look back on it and i was mad about it at the time but I felt good about it at the end. I felt that mm-hmm. that was the right thing to have happened. They ran it their way. I ran it my way. Mm-hmm. Great. Uh, all right. So I think uh, we'll we'll kind of move on here to uh, more of a main uh, kind of discussion topic. So as you and I were exchanging notes about what to kind of focus on as the core of the discussion uh more of the science i suppose you highlighted the topic of hillock as something that really has your attention right now and uh and uh, so so i want to take some time to talk about this in a little bit of detail so i think uh first of all we have a, a diverse audience here i think and not everyone may be very familiar with kind of the role of hillock today so if you could just take a few minutes talking about uh, sort of what it is. I mean, using reverse phase as a reference point, and and why we 
why we care about it and and why you're particularly interested in in uh, this area right now. All right, good. Well, HILIC is uh, sort of an acronym for hydrophilic interaction. And it's the, the opposite of hydrophobic interaction. And the principle in reverse phase chromatography is hydrophobic interaction, although it's unfortunate that there is a separate small technique called hydrophobic interaction that is something it's more like salting out chromatography for proteins but just forgetting about that and assuming that not very many people would even know about that uh, a hydrophobic hydrophobicity is what makes something retain in reverse phase and the the stationary phases are all nonpolar and they interact by hydrophobic forces, uh, which are mostly related to carbon and uh, type van der Waals type forces. And they're very weak forces, but for organic molecules, uh, they're very powerful in creating a separation. And it turned out that one of the real big developments in HPLC around 1970 was for us to discover this technique of hydrophobicity for getting something retained in liquid chromatography. This didn't exist when I started hmm. in HPLC. Uh, DuPont uh, came up with a product called HCP, hydrocarbon polymer, which they coated on Zypax. Hydrocarbon polymer was garden hose material. <laughs> okay. It, it, it was based on Nordell. Nordell was, was, a hot, was a, uh, an ethylene propylene copolymer that DuPont happened to have. It was a flexible, real flexible type of garden hose, high quality. And we coated it onto Zypax, and it gave us some very nice separations. Uh, and it, it, was, uh, it was a sufficiently encouraging that we actually created a bonded phase as well later on and put that onto Zypax. It was called, ETH, uh, what was it called? Was it o ODS permaphase? That's huh. right, ODS, octadecylsilane permaphase, <laughs> bonded to Zypax. And, and it was very stable. And the reason we did it uh, was because of the success, success with hydrocarbon polymer, HCP. Uh, trouble with hydrocarbon polymer is that uh, it only lasted for about a week, if you were lucky. And the whole time, your retention would be decreasing. Yeah. So it showed you what could be done. All you had to do was uh, immobilize it permanently. So we, we did with the chemistry of the covalent bond. <laughs> so the covalent bond came into play and we developed an ether permaphase, which was a siloxane phase, an early siloxane phase. So it was very similar to what we make now, uh, except that it couldn't, didn't, didn't have any surface area. So the reverse phase is huge. And that's probably the, the one single thing that has catapulted HPLC into prominence over, over the 50 years that I've been doing it, uh, more than anything else, I think, just the development of reverse phase HPLC. I don't know what the percentage is that gets separated of all total samples that are out there and problems uh, by reverse phase, but it's got to be 
something like that. It might be more. Uh, and But we can't do everything. Reverse phase doesn't do everything. There are some samples that are not hydrophobic and you just, you can't get them off of the solvent front in liquid chromatography, no matter. So organic is strong, water is weak in reverse phase. We all, most of us know that. And you reach a point where a column, a, a, a column isn't hydrophobic enough to retain a sample if it's too polar. So everything is at the solvent front. You can't get it off the solvent front, no matter what you do, no matter how weak you make it, no matter how much water you use. And, uh, and without any sidetracking, so you and I sometimes do drift off into sidetracks, but I, I don't want to get into the problems you get in, you, you encounter when you try to expose a hydrophobic column to water because in, in many cases, water gets squeezed out of the pores and you run into peak-shaped problems and you run into retention problems that you didn't even realize existed. But we can, we've, had, we've discovered ways to solve that and make the products more wettable and get around that a little bit. But still, you can't push reverse phase any further than so far. And when something gets too polar, like a metabolite that's got sugars hanging all over it, uh, or, or sugars themselves, and uh, the all tremendous number of body, uh, important body chemicals uh, are so hydrophilic that they can't retain on a reverse phase column. You can't do much with them. If you don't have retention, you can't get separation. You don't have separation, you can't get quantitation, and HPLC doesn't work. So we still need more columns. And it's hard to find a big move, make a big move in columns, uh, and except this one mode of chromatography, HPLC, called Hillite, which Andy Alpert invented. And he invented the name as well. Uh, a lot of people will call it uh, uh, aqueous normal phase. It, it's really a, norm, a normal phase chromatography, the way it used to be done before reverse phase, before the days of reverse phase, before 1970, uh, people didn't have reverse phase. So the way they did it was bare silicon and bare alumina and, and other types of materials, cellulosic materials. Uh, and that was always hydrophilic retention. But Andy had a good idea and he coined the name hydrophilic. And people have tried to go aqueous normal phase ever since he introduced the name. But hillic looks to me like it's promising enough that it could fill a big part of the rest of the gap. Let's say we, um, let's say we do 50% of everything we can do now by reverse phase. Well, what's left. Some of, some of the things that are left uh, are the compounds we were talking about, the biochemicals, important biochemicals, metabolites, uh, anything water-soluble. Uh, and I think you can probably, maybe, maybe you can't hit a home run and get another reverse phase, but I think you can go a long way toward it, maybe get uh, the rest, half of the rest of the way, 
if we want to do everything by HPLC using some form of HILIC. Now, HILIC is not going to be as easy as falling off a log. And I think people are realizing that. Um, so I've started to read about what's been going on there. It's been around a long time. Um, and you have to realize that uh, reverse phase was pretty simple and the forces were pretty weak. Uh, it was pretty easy to predict separation in reverse phase. All you needed to do is know the log P of the number. And you could probably get pick out the elution order for compounds about at least 75% of the time. You can't do anything like that in Hillock. Uh, forces are too strong. Molecules have too many functional groups hanging off of them. Uh, the stationary phases that people have come up with often have multiple polar sites on them. How can you possibly predict what's going to happen when you inject a polar compound into a polar multifunctional column stationary phase? You can't do it. Uh, so I think it's holding people back. I, I just read a paper by Tanaka, who I respect very highly. He did a lot of nice work in reverse phase test mixes. One was one of the first people to do this kind of work. And uh, back around uh, 2011, he did a took a shot at Hillock. Uh, looked at what other people had done and picked his own test mix sample and did some interesting stuff. And I don't think he has all of the answers with this paper, but he did reveal some of the problem. And I like the test mixes that he introduced. And I like the fact that he tried them out already on all of these different stationary phases that are available. Andy Alpert's columns, uh, he picked uh, some of the modern ones that are out there, some of the old diol columns, uh, some of the new multiple uh, pentahelic, uh, two of those products. He, he, he had quite a few columns that he was looking at. And he did his nice spider plots. I, I, it's the first time I'd ever seen a spider or radar plot. Well, I think it was a Tanaka paper way back in reverse phase days. I don't know. I don't even know what that might have been. That was probably in the 1980s, late 80s, and early 90s, maybe. Um, but he did some nice work there. I like his radar plots. And uh, just you have to remember that when you're doing radar plots to do relative plots, you can't plot absolute with them because it, it uh, you, you just need to keep everything contained in one, one little target to look at it correctly. So you have to remember. Uh, and some rules about doing radar plots, but that's all easy to do for anybody. Uh, simple stuff that's available in, in Excel software. So we can do those plots, we can look at them, but we still have a lot to learn because um, you, you, you can't isolate which of the stationary 
phase functional groups in which uh, are is interacting strongly with which of the solute functional groups. Uh, you can't can't yet be able to do it. So I kind of like myself. Uh, I'm sort of focusing in my own way because I'm on a learning curve, steep learning curve, with simple stationary phases. I think I like to work. I don't. I don't want to have a complex mobile phase trying to interact with a complex sample. So I'm trying to stick with simple mobile phase, simple stationary phases, one functional group, one main functional group, because you have to remember what's underneath the stationary phase is silica. Mm -hmm. That's polar. So that's always going to be there. And silica never was much of a problem for hydrophobic for reverse phase or not a huge problem for reverse phase, because for the most part, many of the samples won't interact with silica. Mm -hmm. But in the case of polar molecules, everything wants to interact with silica. Yeah. So you've got the uh, very attractive substrate, attraction, strong attraction, for, and stronger attraction forces trying to interact with all of these functional groups that are on the molecule. So I believe it's so complicated that it's going to be tough to work out a model like you guys have done. Um, I mean, you've done some nice work with Lloyd Snyder and, and Jack and Pete in uh, that area uh, with the hydrophobic subtraction model. I don't see how we can do anything quite like that yet in hydrophilic interaction. In fact, you know, when I was up at the uh, Minnesota chromatography meetings, I used to love to go to them. Um, I, I asked Lloyd Snyder once at one of the meetings, and I said, you know, Lloyd, I knew he had a background in silica. You know, everybody has his book. Uh, and he'd be an ideal guy. If anybody could do it, he'd be an ideal guy to work on it. But I asked him, I said, are you going to take on Hillock before you hang it up? And he said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to touch Hillock? I'm going to let that for all the new young whippersnappers. He said, I, he said, it's, it's going to be hard. He said, it's going to be harder to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think we can actually do something with reverse phase. And I think we have, and you have, but uh, I think it's much, much harder to try to put a model together for like so so what are you left with without a model what you're left with is trial and error yeah and and it's you don't you just don't have any way of knowing without shooting the sample and so you're going to have to have 10 or 15 or 20 columns and plug them in randomly because you can't look at it and, and tell which what, what's going to interact but uh, even with all those problems, I think it still stands a chance to be good because let's face it, it, there are some samples that can only be done by reverse phase. There's some that it can only be done by hillock. Mm -hmm. but there's a whole bunch that can be done both ways. Mm -hmm. And if you can do them both ways, that's powerful. Right. Uh, you, you, can, you can look at a sample two ways and get much more information in either one out of it alone, especially mm -hmm. if, if you're not sure that you've isolated everything in the sample and there's something that, that's bothering you that, that you think you're missing. You're unlikely to miss it 
much less likely to miss it if you look at hillock and reverse phase at the same time. And the beauty of it is that you can actually put water and acetonitrile into your liquid chromatograph and do both experiments on one instrument. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And people are doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's extremely powerful and, and very intriguing very, for me, especially uh, not, although I'm not in the lab anymore, I'm working closely with people who are in the lab. So indirectly, I'm getting a lot of kick out of seeing these experiments be done and seeing what you can get out of them. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that going on with hillock and reverse phase where people will use them uh, in, in uh, collaboration with one another. So that's why I'm interested in it. And uh, I think it's, a, it's the next big thing that we need to get solved to make HPLC work for every sample that you mm -hmm. could ever want. And that's what I believe it has a potential to do. Yep. Okay. Well, that uh, that's a lot of really good, I think really good perspective, just in terms of, I mean, things I've even haven't thought about before, just in terms of, you know, why reverse phase was so successful so quickly and how Hillock in some ways is just fundamentally different and is making it um, in the long run, maybe, like you said, in the long run, maybe similarly powerful, but making it more challenging to sort of figure out how to use it. Dwight, there's nothing nothing analogous to a C18 column. Yeah, right. And Hillock, yeah. I mean, in reverse phase, you had this anchoring you. What do mm -hmm. you do? What do you want? To, you got a sample, you throw your C18 in and see what it does. It always does something. Mm -hmm. And so that was your starting point always. And it still is. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing like that, and uh, not yet. I don't think. I mean, if there is, it's an amid column. Hmm. It's the closest thing would be an amid, or or a, an OH, a diol, or a multi ol. That's mm -hmm. uh, probably the, the two general two two general purpose columns that I would have. I would have an amid. I would have an OH. Those are two stable stationary phases. I've worked enough with stationary phases to know that amines aren't stable. Yeah. I mean, they're beautiful. They work beautifully sometimes, but you can just see them disappear. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's frustrating. So at least the way they're made now. So maybe some form of an amine someday, or a stable amine. But the OH is stable. Uh, quite stable, and the amide is quite stable. Both of those are good starting points. Mm -hmm. And if that, if I were in it right now, and actually doing lab work and trying to learn how to do hillock, I'd certainly pursue those columns. And uh, anything more complicated than that, I'm, I just can't imagine. For special things, yes. Uh, Zwitter ionic. Oh, gee, I, you know, I just can't see. I, I would I would use that if I couldn't get the separation on these simpler phases. I always start with a simple phase because I feel that'll be more reproducible mm -hmm. in the long run. And the last thing you want to do is spend a lot of time developing a method and have it disappear on you and you don't know why mm -hmm. because somebody's making their column differently. Sure. 
not intentionally, but it happens. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, I my my own experience with Hillic is pretty limited, but I have to say how how surprising even some of the the little bit that we've done has been. I mean, I we did about five years ago now. We actually did some 2D work where we used Hillic for proteins, like big proteins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it's it's I think to me still kind of amazing that it works because those mobile phases have a lot of a CD nitrile in them. And you don't even usually you don't even think I mean um organic solvents are used to crash out proteins, you know, mm-hmm. it's like how does it actually work? Yeah. <laughs> um so it's a tremendous amount to learn there, but also tremendous potential. And, and for us right now, we're also starting to do some work uh, with oligonucleotides, uh, small RNAs with, with Hillic as well, which um, looks, uh, again, lots to learn, but uh, looks quite promising there as well. Yeah, if there's, if there's one thing that I've seen that looks a lot like an oligomeric se- separation, it's some of that work with oligonucleotides. I mean, mm-hmm. I, some of those chromatograms are beautiful. Okay, great. Well, we uh, covered a lot of territory there. I think a lot of, um, again, I really appreciate the perspective uh, for, for people that are kind of getting into this and, and are developing experience, sort of the idea that starting in a place that's simpler and, and working t- toward things that are more complex, I think is just really smart and comes from uh, lots of experience. So really appreciate that. So um, I want to switch gears here a little bit and just um, take a little bit of time to just hear what you think about, I mean, you've already talked about some of the challenges in front of us in terms of where the field uh, goes, but maybe if you could just talk about, give us like one idea maybe about um, that you haven't talked about already terms of a challenge uh, in separation science that, he's gonna, that you think is going to be important here in the next few years? My concern, because of what I see in the news every day, and I'm retired, so I have not a lot of opportunity to sit and look at the television and look at these news programs and news reporting. I think one of my concerns is that uh, we're polluting the environment. And uh, we're not, not only are we not remediating it, we're not even identifying it. Uh, And I think we need to spend a lot more time trying to separate um, some of these environmental pollutants. And I don't know how in the world we can expect to occupy the planet if we continue to pour out these materials get into our food supply, into the water, and uh, into the air even. So I'm, I'm concerned that we don't have enough sensitivity. We don't have the sample preparation techniques. Uh, and in the poorer countries, I don't think we have just the scientific infrastructure to tackle assays like that. So maybe maybe it's not the kind of an answer you were looking for, but I'm, 
I'm, I'm thinking we have a better chance of unraveling some of this body chemistry stuff that we do uh, and maybe coming up with better drugs or maybe cures for this or diagnosis for that. Some, some information that might be helpful to the medical profession and, and that'll help us live longer. But live longer to do what? Live longer to pollute um, so that there are more people on the planet? I mean, I think we have to learn to live with what we've got, and uh, I'm I'm quite concerned that uh, we're, we're. I can see this in this Florida where I spend a lot of my time now in the winters. I tend to go down. And I'm looking at all the crops that are grown and sold in Florida, and I appreciate it very much. But in order to do that. They dump a lot of fertilizer and a lot of pesticides into the water. And in Florida, the groundwater is right near the surface. And it's, it's extremely serious problem. Uh, and I don't think even if, if you just tried to get in to find out a little bit about it, you find out who's working on it, you find even the labs who are supposed to be monitoring, who's supposed to be the watchdogs, aren't as well equipped as hmm. you think they should be, and as they think they should be. But I don't see that much going on here. I think it almost has, maybe there's too big of a dis, disconnect in the language of chemistry and analysis between the politicians and the average person and the scientists, I mean, there's three different kinds of people working here. There's the, the person who just raising a family, person who's in a lab working and doing the essays, and then you have politicians who are trying to put it all somehow together and provide enough resources to answer some of the problems. So I don't know how I can be helpful. But here in the latter stages of my career, I feel like I ought to be able to do something for people. And I'm not looking to make money on it. I'm just looking to be active in it. But I don't even know how to segue into that world. Uh, yeah. I'm, look, I'm looking into it a little bit. And I've tried to see how I might be able to volunteer in some of these ways. Uh, but it, it's surprising that the opportunities don't seem to to be out there uh, for people like me and other retirees who have a lot of knowledge uh, to offer, a lot of experience to offer. There's no way to utilize them. Mm -hmm. uh, we, one of the most serious things that I've seen is what happened to a place where we spend our winters in Sanibel. And we have a we've retired down there and the hurricane that came through and it just tore up five, 10,000 houses, dumped the contents of everything that these people had drug onto the island in their garages, in their, their, their basements, whatever they had, paints, oils, pesticides, dumped into these beautiful pristine refuges down there. So, I mean, 
the animals are now coexisting with refrigerators and toilets and cars. These are all dumped into the mangrove swamps. And and the thing that's you know it's not just happening in Sanibel, it's happening in other places too. If you look around at all these devastated communities, the amount of pollution that's going on there is tremendous. And we don't have any, we never see anybody going in and taking samples when this is going on. You see the yeah. news people going in and asking people how they feel. Well, obviously they feel terrible, uh, and you know then nobody knows what to do about it. But one of the things we certainly could do is is go in and take samples, monitor the soil, and, and if we had laboratory uh, protocols, we could go in and tell people that it's safe to go back. Even on the Sanibel beaches, we're not allowed on the beaches now, uh, and you, you certainly uh, are not going to be able to go back, and you don't want to be in your bare feet for the next couple of years, I would say. <laughs> Uh, I can't imagine how many millions of glass bottles and toolboxes full of nails and screws and things were washed away. We we had we had we had 15 feet of water come through Sanibel and washed 10,000 people who live on Sanibel just washed their belongings away. Yeah. into the mangrove swamps and onto the beaches. Hmm. So I'm trying I'm trying to morph myself a little bit into an activist, but I don't I'm, I've been very frustrated that there's no mechanism for me to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, it, so it is very concerning uh, for sure, but I but I do think that there so, you know, in my conversations I have with uh, students and young people getting into science, uh, there's a lot of them very deeply interested in and committed to the environment. And I think part of the message here can be that there's a there's a place for you to both do do what you love professionally and and play this role of of addressing the problem. So there's just no and, and separation science has and will continue to play a very important role there, of course. So no shortage of of opportunities there to to make a difference for sure okay uh well well we're gonna try to wrap things up here now so i'd like to close these conversations with uh, kind of a little bit shorter ideas i guess maybe this one's not going to be so short but uh what would you say so again you have a lot of great perspective what would you say to the young folks in the in the audience here maybe somebody at the at uh, the graduate school level or plus or minus a few years um, that is just getting started, what would be your, uh, if you could give them one bit of wisdom, what, 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 would it, what would it be? Try to determine honestly what your skill set is. Uh, I mean, that's all wrapped up in the, in the same question for a young scientist getting started. What I mean, I, a person is doesn't really understand what their skill set is. I, I've learned through trying and failing things so many times that I, my own skill set turned out to be, I have a creative mind, but I don't have an organized mind. Uh, so my wife, who's just the opposite, would say she looks at my desk or my filing system 
and she wants to just take hold of it and fix it all for me because she's so organized and so methodical, but she can't solve problems as well as I can. So we're different people. So you have to understand, we also, we make a good team as a pair, but neither one of us together uh, could work well without the other. For a young scientist, uh, I think, I would get out there and try to get my feet wet as quickly as possible and try a couple of different things if you need to. Don't be afraid to change jobs a few times early. You probably should. I, I was lucky in a way that I got into one thing and I stuck with it, but I think that's rarer and that, uh, that probably just serendipitous. I don't think that's the norm and nor is it even a good idea. So I would recommend a person try different things if they can. And if they find something that they like and it seems to fit what they can do, and I, I try to set, look for an opportunity to set myself apart from other people, something that I could do better, something I'm better at. Okay. No, that, that's great. I think uh, sort of the Figuring out what you're good at, what di what differentiates you. I think that's great advice for sure. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up here, Dick. So thanks so much for joining me with, uh, joining me for the podcast today. Again, really appreciate your perspective on sort of how HPLC has evolved over the years and and some of your current thoughts on on Hillock and um, uh, some of the challenges and opportunities you see lying in front of us uh, in the future. So we'll we'll wrap it up there. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Dwight. Really enjoyed it.